Oh, my dear, diligent guest. Have you been coming to my foxhole all this time? I'm going to reword that. Have you been making the trek up to my cabin for the past four months, patiently waiting for my return? You are truly a dear friend and compatriot. Yes, I have been away across the world doing so many mystical, esoteric things that it may restructure the entirety of previously established Foxo-Esoterica introduction canon, but, my friend, worry not. Nothing I've established so far is getting retconned. I just need to revisit the scripts before writing any more introductions. Honestly, I probably should have done that before you came here tonight. <laughs> but it's Sawain, the end of the witch's yearly sabbatical cycle, and the night where those among the living may once again consort with those amongst the dead. So I had more important things to do. I appreciate you coming this Halloween night, though. I had just consorted with the ghost of a Leicester Lorekeeper. I know how much you enjoy my stories, and I had to make sure that tonight's was as detailed and authentic as possible. Dear friend, tonight, I'd like to discuss the legend of one of the most prolific witches of history. Probably the sixth most prolific witch in history, now that I'm thinking about it, but a nevertheless haunting tale. Cannibalism is involved. Probably not in the most literal sense. I don't know how human the entity actually is. But come, come. I want to reward your diligence and commitment to our friendship. Tonight is all about you. Drinks and snacks are on me this evening. I have apple slices and hummus and crackers. And oh, I'm going to be making a particularly potent boozy brew right here in my cauldron. Perhaps you know the recipe? It's famous among witches, particularly those from Scotland. Or of the stage. My recipe is a bit of a variation, though. Just let me finish this incantation. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, fondling from a fenny snake, in my cauldron boil and bake, sigh of newt and groan of frog. Wait. I may want to monetize this later. Welcome, welcome to the foxhole and fox. So esoterica. I promise I was sober when I wrote this. Welcome back to Foxo Esoterica, the furry paranormal comedy podcast that went on an unprompted hiatus because life just catches up to you sometimes, you know? I'm your host, Forsetti Fox, the goody witch who was once seen with the devil, but is now currently being put on trial, bound by court order to explain a season-long absence. I guess you all were getting tired of... dot dot dot... more weight. <laughs> I started with Shakespeare and went on to Arthur Miller. I'd say something like, who says a theater degree isn't useful, if both of those plays weren't regularly covered in high school. But yes, it's been a while, and part of the reason was because I am currently attempting to move to Germany to live with my husband a second time. Woo! Indeed, I am currently recording this episode from our apartment in Essen once again. So a lot of the summer involved preparing for that, but also a lot of traveling in general just to see friends and such, and other personal life things. But without getting into so much detail, the other part of the reason was definitely mental health related. Based around things that are better left private, I think. I'm currently doing really well, especially since I once again get to live with my husband. But yes, for a while my creative projects felt exhausting, and I unfortunately put this one on the back burner. I would like to fix that, especially now that it is currently the spooky season. That does bring me to my next bit of housekeeping, though, and probably the biggest change in Foxo Esoterica formulaically. 
From here on out, I'm going to be doing a majority of my episodes as a solo project, and without the drunken debauchery. I will still have a good few of the fun stories done with a guest and a good fine wine, but while I was on hiatus, I realized that a lot of these supernatural stories shine far brighter when I can focus on the story itself without ad-libs. Some of the episodes approached three hours, and while I think some stories absolutely deserve that, it'd help me turn episodes into two-part stories if I could record them at different moments, instead of trying to cut up a drunken recording done in one night. I will, however, indicate whenever I have a guest on the podcast in the title of the video. Also, this feels like a minor change, but from here on out, the podcast episodes are going to be titled simply by the story itself, without the season and episode numbers. It was kind of just feel busy to me. This is an aesthetic thing, it's not that big. One benefit of the method that I am going to be employing, however, is that I'll be able to get more than one episode out a month, so look forward to that. But that's enough housekeeping for one introduction. It's Halloween night, one of the most important Sabbaths in a young witch's practice, and while the veil between mortal and monster is thinnest, I'd like to discuss a story of a particularly prolific pagan legend. Alas, you and I, my dear guest, I'm getting back into character slash canon again, are the only entities present in this cabin. For now. So I'll jump right into the introductory bit itself. However, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that tonight's story hails from the Folked Up Encyclopedia Collection. And the potion brewed this evening is going to be... A glass of water. I have a con this weekend, and I totally put this project on the back burner, and I'm running out of time, and I don't have any alcohol handy, so we're going to be doing it sober. Like, completely sober. Uh, which means the next part of the script probably won't make that much sense. I won't be having more than a glass. Worry not. Nothing dries up your throat more than wine and monologuing. A shame this episode will be less of a conversation. I like the water breaks. Alrighty, jumping right in. This is new. In the Dane Hills of Leicestershire County, directly in the middle of the land of England, stands a great and towering oak, a sentinel keeping watch above a dank, dark cave. What dwells inside of the cave also has a habit of dwelling within the nightmares of English children. She is described as having pale blue, wrinkled skin, claws as sharp as steel swords, and a shrill howl that could be heard from five miles away. Some even claim that she is the progenitor to the modern-day boogeyman, though her legend spans as far back as the pre-Roman days, before the stories of the Celtic religion were even recorded. Or so some say. Though a bit of a misnomer due to her more cerulean appearance, the folk of Leicestershire would name this figure Black Annis, and would tell stories around late-night fires of her proclivity towards snatching babies from windows, feasting on lambs raw, and devouring stray children who wandered too far into the Dane Hills alone. On this auspicious Sawain Sabbath, I'd like to discuss one of the most legendary witches in folkloric history. I'd like to discuss the legend as is, the origins of the legend, and perhaps, if the stories are indeed true, first-hand encounters of this malevolent, Maleficent-esque monster. But first, sources. Once again, I used Wikipedia first and foremost, but I didn't stop there. The first source is Catherine Briggs' book, Encyclopedia of Fairies, written in 1976. I also used C.J. Bilson's book, Country Folklore, written in 1895. A paper written by Bob Trubshaw titled, The Making of a Legend, Black Annis and Her Bower. Eric Edwards' article online titled The Folklore of the Hag and Crone The book 
The Triumph of the Moon, A History of Modern Pagan Witchcraft, written by Ronald Hutton in 1999. And last but not least, Wikipedia. Did I mention Wikipedia already? I think I did, but I want to mention it again. You should all donate to Wikipedia. I love Wikipedia. Alright, so, much like modern-day Hookman or Bloody Mary, Black Annis primarily thrives within the realm of legend. Though she is not a fictional character, inasmuch as she doesn't come from a book or poem or anything, the various stories of Black Annis are primarily apocryphal, and repeated by the way of oral tradition. There weren't any Brothers Grimm-type books that served as a complete documented guide on what Black Annis and her vibe was. And instead, what we know of the legend is what people of Leicester passed down. I want to avoid saying and also writing down the name of that county as much as possible. I have to look it up every time. But, because of that, not Leicester, just the uh, general oral tradition in general, this presents us with two unique obstacles. One, no one is certain as to what the origins of the Black Annis legend are, though we have potentially three likely candidates. I'll get to that in a sec. Two, Obviously, no one is really reporting the sightings of Black Annis after the 18th century, at least in cryptozoological circles. Did I say that correctly the first time? Cryptozoological circles. <laughs> so we're dealing with less of a let's hunt this cryptid, cryptid, and more of a legendary, most certainly fictional being, like Paul Bunyan. At the time that I am writing this, semicolon, really early into the research process, I have yet to find any actual reports on sightings. Uh, ad-lib if I find reports. Yeah, I found, I found one. Yeah, I found one later. However, up until the late 18th century, it is important to note that people did believe in the existence of Black Annis, and not just children. It was recorded that people would actually bolt their doors shut at night, fix tanned animal skins on the window's frame to block entry if they were too poor for glass, and even go so far as to build smaller windows entirely. The thought being that the modest windows would only allow Black Annis to be able to stick a single arm through, and no more. People would also make sure to build fireplaces as far away from the windows as possible, so that the family could safely huddle around the fire in winter, and not be near the baby-snatching window. Briggs' Encyclopedia also talks about a yearly tradition that took place on Easter Monday, wherein the Leicester folk would stuff a dead cap full of Annis seed and drag it from the cave thought to be Black Annis' dwelling, all the way to the mayor's house, to be pursued by a pack of hunting dogs. Now, obviously, this parade doesn't mean that the people of the time were literally trying to catch the witch. It is definitely more of a symbolic festivity, though it is indicative of the fact that Black Annis was on everyone's mind, up until the tradition died out towards the 1790s. Before I get too into the weeds on whether or not the legendary hag was real, I want to get into detail on what it was exactly that she did because she is wild. As I mentioned in the introductory bit, Black Annis is reported to have looked like an old withered crone with pale blue skin, jet black, long messy hair- Oh, that's why she's called Black Annis. Massive claws made out of iron instead of normal human fingers, and razor sharp teeth, also presumably made out of iron. She was said to have dwelt within a small cavern in the forests of the Dane Hills, known as Black Annis's Bower Clothes. Indeed, where the Dead Cat Parade began. The clothes part of the name presumably comes from the fact that there was definitely a cave that people associated Black Annis with, but C.J. Bilson admits that the supposed cave was filled up by rain, soil, 
and a potential mudslide 70 years before he wrote his folktale book in 1895. So, you know, 1825, if you want me to do the math for you. He also remarks on the fact that Dane Hills is also a bit of a misnomer, inasmuch as the Danish people hadn't really had a presence in the area historically, and that the real name of the place was potentially the Dune Hills. And this is far too much conjecture on my end, and far too little horrifying witch lore, but to me, that indicates that the hills were probably duny and prone to mud and or sand and or soil slides. The area is a suburb now, however, with normal-looking fields and trees, so who's to say it used to be a, quote, wild forest. Where Black Annis lived pales in comparison to what Black Annis did, however, and what Black Annis did, indeed, was commit cannibalism. As I mentioned before, Black Annis had a habit of abducting babies from windows, a legend so pervasive that it informed how people should build their homes. She would also wait on the branches of trees and swoop down in order to maim children, a hunting tactic that she also utilized on hunting sheep, much to the chagrin of the shepherds in the area. Now, it is important to know that she would never eat her victims on the spot, often carrying them back to her bower to hang up and cook later, or as some claim, tan their hides in order to make a leather. A few reports also involve her sucking the blood out of her victims before hanging them up to tan. A more time capsule-esque snapshot comes from the writings of an author by the name of William Cayley, who in 1974 wrote, quote, Black Anna was said to be in the habit of crouching among the branches of the old pollard oak, the last remnant of the forest, which grew in the cleft of the rock over the mouth of her cave or bower, ever ready to spring like a wild beast on any stray children passing below. The cave she was traditionally said to have dug out of the solid rock with her fingernails. On my last visit to the bower close, now several years ago, the trunk of the old tree was then standing, but I know not if it still remains. Kelly was a Leicestershire native, born in 1815, and I'm going to be saying that word eight more times. Black Annis wasn't just a hunter, however. She had a few magical powers up her sleeve as well. Chief among them was the ability to transform, and her main transmorgative form was that of a monstrous cat. Ergo, the reason why the dead cat parade was such a prevalent tradition. As I'm writing this, I'm getting serious Dracula vibes to a degree, but drinking blood and transforming into animals all by itself does not a vampire make. The blue-skinned hag also had odd vocal abilities, and is described as having a howl that could be heard from five miles away, as well as possessing a particularly loud teeth-grinding habit, loud enough to warn people that the witch was nearby. Also, while Black Annis has the appearance of an older woman, she doesn't necessarily age. The legend spans centuries, and it's no large stretch to indicate that figures like Black Annis are more or less immortal. Black Annis also has a proclivity towards soothsaying, and predicting the future. One of the most prolific predictions allegedly involved Richard III and his death at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. Shakespeare fans know him well as the evil guy that got a lot of people killed in order to become a king. Historically, Leicester was the location of the doomed king left before going to his final battle against Henry VII. And it was here that Richard allegedly met an old soothsayer woman who I guess didn't have blue skin or razor claws, but here we are. A bunch of specific details about the prophecy involve Richard leaving the Silver Boar Inn, hitting a stone with his heel, 
hitting the same stone with his head after dying, and then returning to the Blue Boar Inn, which, without getting into too much semantic detail, happened exactly. If my jovial language and habitual joking haven't given it away, this story is very, very apocryphal, and not even apocryphal enough to book Black Annis as a role in Shakespeare's Richard III. The prophecy instead coming from Richard's nightmare wherein the ghosts of everyone he kills tells him how he's going to lose the battle. In fact, in Trubshaw's paper, the Richard's soothsayer and Black Annis connection was pretty much created by a teacher in Leicestershire, Margaret Penfold, in 2005. However, Black Annis would appear in other theatrical productions at the time as a Macbethian witch character who spoke prophecy and twisted fates, namely in the play, Black Annis Bower, or The Maniac of the Dane Hills, written in 1880 by Thomas Hickey. You'll never guess what that play is about. This is all a big theater nerd tangent to bring home the main point, however, and that main point was that if you weren't a child and Black Annis wasn't particularly hungry, she would occasionally spell out your doom by predicting your dark future in fun and innovative ways. Now, before I start getting too into the potential origins of Black Annis, I want to continue down this literary train of thought and start talking about the folkloric hag. By all accounts, Black Annis is a witch. However, her legend gained a lot of traction even after the damnable book, The Malaeus Maleficarum, was published in 1478, which began the horrifying Christian witch hunts. And indeed, the legend of Black Annis would even be prevalent in the public eye well after the last execution of a witch in England. One might think that the story of a cannibal witch living in the hills would spark some sort of witch hunt, and by that, I mean the accusation of an innocent woman in the Leicestershire area as opposed to just a dead cat parade. Though Black Annis would always cement herself in English folklore as something to avoid, to warn your children about, to never under any circumstances approach, even if your intention is to kill her. As a side note, one of the origins of Black Annis does involve a real woman, though she is prejudiced for an entirely different reason unrelated to witchcraft. She was actually way too Christian. I'll get to that soon, though. Indeed. In the context of mythology and legend, there is a difference between a witch and a hag. Though hags are also usually related to witches, just not in the uh, overtly Satan-adjacent way. The word hag, in more modern contexts, however, usually brings to mind a degree of sexism. Usually the first thing that comes to mind when hearing the word is a bad person bullying a woman based on age or appearance, and I would hazard against using the word completely in modern contexts. However, in Germanic, Old English, slash Anglo-Saxon, and even Slavic, semicolon, yep, I'm looking at you, Baba Yaga, I love you so much. Etymology, the word hag comes from the Old English word that kind of means witch, semicolon, hagta. I'm going to spell it because it's Old English and I'm not pronouncing it right. H-A-E-G-T-A. I don't even think those letters were used that way in Old English. Hagta and the German word Hexa have very similar roots, and the Old High German word Hagzusa. In addition, you know what, before I continue, I don't know High German either, and I'm learning that language. <laughs> so Hagzusa is also wrong, but that's H-A-G. Z-U-S-A. In addition, the etymology of the Hegta in the English Isles also draws inspiration from the Scandinavian Myra or Mara, which, while not necessarily full-on witches, do possess a trait that would later be attributed to English hags. 
All of this is, of course, pre-Malleus Maleficarum, so the quote-unquote witch of the English Isles would, in folklore, branch off from the witch hunty witch of the medieval witch hunts. While this is a very, very cursory glance and shallow, shallow dive into etymology, look at it this way. Black Annis would become a figure more like Hansel and Gretel's gingerbread house witch, and less of Robert Eggers' Salem witch trial-esque the witch. And this is because, if you trace the etymology back a bit, you get a whole other literary character entirely. Older magical women have a prolific place in Norse and Celtic pantheons. The Norse goddess, Ellie, who defeats Thor once, uh, but there aren't a lot of other surviving Norse myths about her, is an example of this, in addition to the fate-weaving Norn, as well as the Celtic Caridwin, or Anu sometimes, but I'll get to that. And these figures would share many similar traits with later literary figures, such as Baba Yaga, Jenny Greenteeth, Kailik Bair, uh, Kailik would be an Irish version of the folkloric hag, and of course, Black Annis. All of these figures showcasing the appearance of an older, usually malevolent woman, parentheses, often with exaggerated features, parentheses close, practicing magic and posing a threat to naughty children. But where does the malevolence come in if these figures share similarities with more or less benevolent gods? That's where the Mara comes in. The Mara, without getting into too much detail, I'm already lost in the weeds a bit here, are malevolent entities of Germanic and Scandinavian cultures, often described as demonic-looking women who would entangle their hair with the mane of a horse and ride the horse to exhaustion. The Mara can also ride on a sleeping person, entangling their hair, and giving them bad dreams, hence the origin of the, quote, nightmare. This image of an older, malevolent-looking entity riding a sleeping person would later become a key trait of the hag figure, and in fact, hag-ridden would be the term that was used to describe the phenomena of sleep paralysis back in the day. These aren't the only sources for potential mythological origins of the hag, or figures similar to Black Annis, but it is important to note that these sorts of figures are very different from the witches often associated with Christianity, and namely, Christian witch hunters. Wasn't that fun? I'm not an expert on etymology or folklore, so some of that might be wrong, especially since I'm, uh, doing a cold read and probably didn't say every word verbatim that I wrote. <laughs> but let's move on. I mentioned earlier the two Christian women. That would be no other than Agnes Scott, a woman whose existence is verifiable, and in fact, has a grave at Swithland Church, just north of Leicestershire. If you've never seen that word spelled out before, try to spell it in your head, see if you're correct. L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R-S-H-I-R-E. Wasn't that fun? Didn't you think that there were half of the letters in that word? Moving on. Indicating that she died in 1455. What indicated that? Oh yes, her grave. Now, in regards to legend origins, the connection between Agnes Scott and Black Annis isn't exactly one-to-one. -one. But Scott was described as a medieval, quote, anchoress. An anchorite, or anchoress in this case, is a person who aspires to completely remove themselves from the secular world and devote their entire life to prayer and asceticism, living life almost like a hermit. In fact, many anchorites would undergo a specific rite, not unlike a funeral, before attempting the lifestyle, proclaiming themselves dead to the world. This passage of the podcast is relying heavily on Wikipedia, also. More often than not, anchorites took a vow of stability of place, and this place was often an ascetic, bare-bones cell often attached to a church. 
but in the case of Agnes Scott, she opted to live out her anchorous lifestyle in dot dot dot, a cave in the Dane Hills near Leicester. How did this very godly woman end up being personified as a murderous cannibal baby-eater witch, though? Outside of children's stories, this conflation, like many other stories covered on this podcast, has to do with the ever-present antagonism between Catholics and Protestants. Protestants were not very big fans of the Anchorite lifestyle, and while they weren't outright persecuting the ascetic hermits, Protestants often disagreed with the whole venture, which led to anti-Anchorite sentiment. Too little is known about the life of Agnes Scott, though we do know that she was born in nearby Little Antrim and likely never left the area for her entire life. All being said, it's historically safe to say that the Leicestershire Protestants... How many times did I put this word in here? I told myself I was going to avoid it. Why is it the uh, double digits now? Moving on. Protestants may have started malicious rumors about her out of spite, and perhaps those rumors grew into the Black Annis mythos. However, to detract from that entirely, Wikipedia also states that Agnes Scott may also have been a nun, and may also have helped in service to a group of people experiencing leprosy, and that... Leicestershire... 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 Area. These details are far trickier to verify, though, so I did want to bring them up, and then shut them down immediately. On the other hand... What if Black Annis was a god? A lot of my sources also believe that the legend of Black Annis could be an evolution of a figure that came from before Christians arrived in the area. In this case, the Celtic deity Anu, or Danu, or Anand, or a bunch of other names, sometimes even more again. (laughs) Because a lot of the religious practices in the area relied on oral tradition to tell its stories, And because Christians had a habit of trying to get rid of myths that weren't very Christ-like, there isn't a whole lot of information that survives that explains Anu's role in her prospective pantheons. Parentheses, it is speculated that she was primarily an Irish deity, though she also has variations in other parts of the Greater British Isles. Anu was supposedly the mother of the deities in the Celtic pantheon, or more specifically, the Tuatha de Danann, as described in uh, Samson's Cormaic a literary piece describing the history of the Celtic gods, but that is the only actual reference that has been found in written text. It is thought, however, that Anu is thought of as a wise older woman, an archetypical crone deity. This is not thought by everyone. This next section dwells in the realm of speculation. But in some circles, it is thought that Gentle Annie was a title used to describe the goddess by means of revering her, in a similar way to which people would describe the fae as the good folk, to win their good favor. And while this was a folklorically Scottish figure, Black Annie is the reverse side of that coin, insinuating that this fae figure had a bit more tricks than treats for the people she encountered. This fact is mostly noted by Belson and uh, Briggs and their prospective sources. Over time, as the myths became forgotten, it is thought that Anu became Black Annis the more that non-Christian deities began to resemble agents of the devil. The winter spirit, Kylik Bayer, also sometimes gets associated with both Anu and Black Annis. Those are the two biggest camps. It isn't highly thought that Black Annis was simply a fictional monster concocted to convince kids to behave, and as much as I hate to admit it, it's highly unlikely that Black Annis was real. But what if a few sightings were recorded? And by a few, I mean one. I only found one. As recorded by a reporter by the name of Ruth Tongue, evacuees, 
I'm assuming of higher priority target. Leicestershire and World War II. Everyone always says evacuees, but no one says of what. Claim that. When they were children, they went to go collect firewood in the Dane Hills one Christmas Eve. They knew of Black Annis' whereabouts, and whether or not they believed that she existed, they do claim that they heard a rumor that she turned to solid stone when the sun came up. A new factor to the legend, of course. One of the children was in possession of a hagstone, which actually doesn't relate to Black Annis specifically. Hagstones are a naturally occurring flat stone in which a hole is bored through the middle, either by clams or a natural erosion. When one of the children looked through the hole in the stone, after hearing odd shuffling in the bushes, they saw her, the blue-skinned, sharp-clawed witch herself. The children dropped the sticks and ran, and Annis, stumbling over them, cut up her leg badly, and had to return to tend to her wounds. The hag, however, decided that she'd return for the children and visit their home in the middle of the night. Their father, however, wielding an axe, smacked Black Annis right in the face as soon as she arrived, prompting her to run off into the night crying, Blood! Blood! Legend says that as soon as the bells chimed to signify the coming of Christmas, Black Annis dropped dead where she stood. But the following week, people still claimed to hear her howling coming from the Dane Hills and could hear her teeth grinding from outside of their windows that night. One may assume that this story has legend tropes enough to insinuate that it is strictly coming from online sources, and is ping-ponged back and forth on different forums with no clear origin. But it does, indeed, come from a specific origin. And that origin is Briggs's book. And Ruth Lindahl Tongue is a real person with a Wikipedia page as well. It should be noted that this story did not take place in 1941, though. If I didn't make that clear, it was simply recorded that year and uh, was detailing things that happened years in the past without a specific date. That's about it, though. Forgive me for building suspense and so expertly dashing it after I told a single story. Even though conclusions are yet to come, there is no part of me that believes that Black Annis would be out and about, especially after the end of the 19th century. And I scoured the internet for any story I could find, even on Reddit. And so ends my foray into this particular cannibalistic entity. I would be remiss if I didn't mention, however, that Black Annis is far from alone in the club of hags in the British Isles. I almost considered pairing this episode's legend with Jenny Greenteeth, one of a handful of other witch-like boogeymen, and one that I've also mentioned before. But her legend is just as deep as that Black Annis's, and I don't want to water it down. These are puds. She drowns people. However, she deserves her own episode down the line. And I promise I'll do that this time. I know I've been putting Annabelle the doll off for a while now after mentioning her in Robert the Doll's episode. I'll work on that soon. Either way, it's time for conclusions. There isn't much to say about a figure so deeply rooted in folklore, and less rooted in supposedly claimed sightings in the modern age, but she is haunting nonetheless. It isn't often that you have a cryptid that supposedly actively goes after you, to the point where people, for hundreds of years, actively took precautions to prevent her from entering their homes. Now. Do I believe that she's a super-religious person, a Celtic goddess, a creature in her own right, a made-up tale to prevent children from wandering off into the woods? I want to say, I don't know. I'm not a folklorist or historian. But that's the boring answer. So my money is on the notion that she was once a fey entity, maybe not a deity herself, but magical enough to live in their sphere of existence. And people in history have a need to contextualize things. So I understand the need to connect her to a person or figure, but I personally believe that she started her story as an entity unto herself. She isn't as motherly as Anu, she eats children, 
And she isn't as pious as a nun might be. She eats children. I do want to say that it is quite fun to have a menacing figure without a tragic backstory. She's just evil for the sake of being evil. Or perhaps she's just a culinary genius and knows a mind-blowing recipe in the hag community that unfortunately involves eating children. I wouldn't know. I'm a vegetarian. That brings us to the end of the episode, though. How the time flies when you're actually sober and not having to talk over people who are also not sober. Not that I don't love my guests. I do deeply enjoy my guests. They sometimes talk and let me take a breath because I have been talking this whole time and my voice is about to disappear. (laughs) Kidding, kidding. I love all my guests, but I also think that uh, this will be a fun new step forward for the podcast. These concise stories are easier to listen to and, uh, you know, probably more cohesive. Without further ado, though, let's head on to the review corner. I couldn't find Black Annis' Bower Close itself, but I did find the Dane Hills on Google Maps, and there's a park called Western Park right nearby. Who knows? Maybe Black Annis lives there still. Brooklyn Campbell writes, A beautiful place for families. Good for picnics. It's suitable for all ages and come equipped with a bog. Five stars. Stephen Hartley writes, A great place to walk around. Four stars. John Goh writes, Nice park. Five stars. There are nine reviews, and three of them have comments. Anyway, you can find Fox Esoterica on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at F-O-R-S-E-T-I-F-O-X, and you can support Foxo Esoterica on Patreon and Coffee at capital F-O-R-S-E-T-I, capital F-O-X for both. Thanks to Twitter user Sun El Chiquito for the podcast artwork. And now, instead of ending the episode normally, I'd like to perform a recitation of John Hayrick's 1797 poem. It's probably in the public domain. It's really important, though. A lot of the sources I sourced sourced this. Where down the plain the winding pathway falls, from Glenfieldville to Leicester's ancient walls, nature or art with imitative power, far in the glen has placed Black Annis's bower. An oak, the pride of all the mossy dell, spreads its broad arms above the stony cell, and many a bush with hostile thorns arrayed forbids the secret cavern to invade. Whilst delving valves each way meander round, and violet banks with redolence abound. Here, if the uncouth song of former days soil not the paint with falsehood's artful lays, Black Annis held her solitary reign, the dread and wonder of the neighboring land. The shepherd grieved to view his waning flock, and traced his firstlings to the gloomy rock. No vagrant children culled the flowerets then, for infant blood oft stained the gory den. Not Sparta's mount, for infant tears renowned, echoed more frequently the piteous sound. Oft the gaunt maid and frantic mother cursed, whom Britain's wolf with savage nipples nursed, whom Lester's sons beheld aghast the scene, nor dared to meet the monster of the green. Tis said the soul of mortal men recoiled to view Black Annis' eye. 
so fierce and wild. Vast talons, foul with human flesh, there grew, in place of hands and features livid blue. Glared in the visage, while the obscene waste, warm skins of human victims close embraced. But time, then man, more certain though more slow, at length against Annas drew his sable bow. The great degree the pious shepherds blessed, and general joy the general fear confessed. Not without terror they the cave survey, where hung the monstrous trophies of her sway. Tis said that in the rock large rooms were found, scooped with her claws beneath the flinty ground. And these the swains her hated body threw, but left the entrance still to future view, that children's children might the tale rehearse, and bards record it in their tuneful verse. In these listless days the idol of bard gives to the wind all themes of cold regard. Forgive, then if in rough, unpolished song, an unskilled swain the dying tale prelog. And you, ye fair, whom nature succeeds delight, if Annas's bower your vagrant steps invite, ere the bright sun Aurora's car succeed, or dewy evening quench the thirsty need. Forbear with children centuries that refuse some generous tribute to the rustic muse. A violet more common daisy throw, such gifts as Morrow's lovely nymphs bestow. Then shall your bard survive the critic's frown, and in your smiles enjoy his best renown. I don't remember how I usually end the podcast. I usually, I usually don't do poetry. Um, uh, happy, happy Halloween!